You're listening to the Monash Arts Podcast. Once a city of six million people, what has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. You know, it's always interesting when I when I uh, begin to tell people what I research because uh, then you have to go into a longer explanation. But um, Godzilla uh, and the politics of the nuclear experience, as well as wine. Well, my name is Jason Christopher Jones. I'm a lecturer in Japanese studies here at Monash. I work on quite a bit of film in my research on Japan. And as you know, Godzilla has been an iconic character in Japan since the early 1950s. Uh, and Godzilla has been remade several times uh, by Hollywood. Most people haven't seen the first couple of Godzilla remakes because they just sort of took the original Godzilla film and edited the film. So looking at how Hollywood would take these Japanese films, including Godzilla, you know, things like The Ring, The Grudge, uh, Dark Water, and uh, Shall We Dance, and all these other Japanese films, looking at what Hollywood would have to do to change those films for an American audience and also for a global audience, You've heard the saying, you know, those who forget history are are doomed to repeat it. Um, And this is one of the most important aspects of researching a film like Godzilla. Behind Godzilla, uh, behind that monster, you know, rests all of these metaphors, you know, these metaphors for what happened during World War II and, and directly after the war. You know, in that film, you have a Japan that is very quickly rebuilding itself and you have... A world that is has uh, has been ushered into the nuclear age, right? And we have the development of a nuclear arms race, and we have nuclear testing, um, in you know nuclear testing all all over the world. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than twenty thousand tons of TNT. So you go from a film like, let's say, Godzilla 1954, which is very critical of the development of those weapons, the use of those weapons, the continued testing of those weapons, and that gets pulled into the Hollywood machine. And it's a Hollywood machine, you know, during the, well, in the the late 30s, you have King Kong, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. You know, you have this collection of of monster films, Them. Them, I think, had ants and uh, tarantula. I tell you, gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, would be extinct within a year. And, and in these films, there's usually this nuclear trope where nuclear power does something to turn the thing into this huge uh, version of itself. Instead of directly facing that history of what the effects of 
nuclear weapons are and, and fallout and radiation and those sorts of things. In making that transition from Japan to Hollywood, you are essentially creating a film that tries to fit into the films that are already in Hollywood. And you're trying to create a film that, you know, again, it's 1954, not even 10 years have passed uh, since the end of World War II. So there's still uh, sensitive elements, okay? And although you do have a lot of work being done in the U.S., calling into, into question the politics of bombing, uh, using nuclear weapons uh, against Japan, it's still an environment in which entertainment has to come first. And that, you know, you could argue is, is somewhat a Hollywood mantra. And so it becomes necessary to separate Godzilla the monster from the original meaning of that monster. And Japan ends up helping with this. Uh, you know, the first couple of Godzilla films were very serious films, very critical of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the role of the U.S. as well as the role in Japan, uh, of Japan in aiding in the proliferation of, uh, of nuclear weapons. But after that, you know, Japan, uh, the economy's going, going well. People, I guess, move further and further from those immediate post-war years. People want to have happier memories. Life is looking good. And so Godzilla changes within this environment. And that's when you start to see the uh, Godzilla versus this or that, this long list of monsters, you know, King Ghidorah and, and all of these monsters come about. That's essentially what happens and why, why we don't necessarily associate Godzilla with these uh, more serious issues. And cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. In 1984, uh, one of the more serious Godzilla films was released, and you can imagine in 1984, it's the middle of the Cold War and hostilities between the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union are uh, there at an all-time high, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you could say. In this 1984 Godzilla film, uh, it's Japan that that uh, plays the role of uh, mediator, intermediary, uh, trying to prevent the U.S. and the Soviet Union from rushing to use nuclear weapons to uh, to defeat uh, Godzilla. Uh, so Japan plays the voice of reason in that film. Uh, and then after that, you have uh, something like maybe Godzilla 1998, which was the one with Matthew Broderick where Godzilla is essentially a giant iguana brought about by French nuclear testing. More recent Godzilla films have tried to bring back uh, a, a, a bit of a critical element, but that original history uh, is pretty much gone from the Godzilla films. You know, studying is a way of life for me. And that's one of the things that you do as an academic. You study. There's a question uh, that pops up or someone asks you a question or you notice something. 
and you are curious enough to want to go uh, to spend time in archives, for example, performing archival research, trying to, to put together a narrative, trying to put together a story, trying to, to put together a history. If you've ever adopted a pet, you know, a cat or a dog, they often tell you that it's the animal that chooses you. And that's how I feel with my career. I feel like this one grabbed me. And so in that sense, I think it was a, it was a calling. I love my life. You know, I love uh, being able to do research. Um, I love trying to figure out ways uh, to make that research, uh, you know, relevant and useful in other people's lives. You know, one of the things about uh, research in the humanities is that the use of that research is not, it usually does not come you know, with the research itself. And, and I love uh, seeing this sort of research applied so that people, it affects people's lives in a positive way. Mm-hmm.